0: Good morning, everybody. Whoa, I am loud. Uh, Is that all right? Did you just turn it down, Alan? Oh, okay. I was going to say my hearing's coming in and out. Uh, A little higher, my friend? Just a little test. Yeah, right there. Right there. Perfect. Um, There was a couple things I wanted to mention this morning before we started, and that was I was reading about... uh, I think there's two places in Paul's letters where he says greet one another with a holy kiss.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> As they laugh, um, so uh, the the writing which pointed this out was uh, what what it pointed out about it was not so much the kissing, but the um, the fact that in the ancient world, uh, much more so than now, in the early church. People were from a vast uh, strata of social class. So in your same church, you could have slaves and you know, and very poor. And when you're poor in, at that time, it's, it's, uh, it's extreme poverty. And that as we saw in the Corinthian church, or we see in the Corinthian church that the rich were hanging out with each other. and not, And so the greeting was, uh, something that and i it 's funny because it was it 's been on my mind, so as I saw you all come in, which in our big church is not hard to see, but you know it's you do you guys do that naturally, and so I wanted to encourage you in that i i didn 't see much kissing, but I saw greeting, and i think I think that 's good enough i think that 's exactly what Paul is after uh, another thing that um, came across my desk, I suppose, is for a particular book that I I have for my next class, which is about um, the the writings of the New Testament. It's um, – this is a study of the – it's kind of like textual criticism where you're you're analyzing the authors, the time of writing, who their audience is, and to actually try and get yourself in the first century when these letters are written – ...and to whom they're written to. And so th- it's a very important thing to do... ...because our society, culture... Uh, ...is quite different from theirs. And, um, and so one of the things he wrote... ...in the introduction to this book... ...was he says, the first, cre- the first question... ...is why these writings should exist at all. And when you read this, you say... ...wow, you know, I just take this for granted. The question of sheer existence is one natural to poets and philosophers who first allow themselves to be stunned by the realization that there are such things as trees and flowers before they try to describe them and explain them. The existential question pertains to the New Testament in a fairly obvious way. It is not at all necessary that religious movements produce writings, still less that they in a short period of time certify those writings as sacred texts. And that I hadn't thought of, that in a matter of decades, the gospel writings and the letters were all accepted as sacred. There wasn't like a period of hundreds of years where they were analyzed or it was immediate that they were accepted as sacred texts. That has never happened of any other literature in the history of mankind. He continues, not every failed messianic figure generates a literature that insists he is still alive and apparently makes this absurd claim plausible to others. Not all communities expecting the imminent end of the world produce documents remarkably unconcerned with timetables for demolition or more concerned with interpreting the past than predicting the future. And so, like the book of Revelation... Where's, is there a timetable there? In most apocalyptic literature of ancient pagan religions, like uh, we were all wigged out in 2000, well, not we, but the world was in 2012. Why? Because the Mayan calendar. right? The Mayan calendar is coming to an end, and, and things were predicted for the future as a timeline. In the book of Revelation, more is spoken about of the past than is actually the future. So you say, well, what kind of apocalyptic literature is that? The production of these writings should be a shock. The poet or philosopher would conclude from such an effect, a commensurate cause, whether natural or magical, something happened that gave birth to these writings. And I thought that was pretty cool. And now you can as well. So let's uh, begin with prayer and let's, be grateful and thankful this morning for being together, having the royal family, having his word, having all the great blessings that God the Father has predetermined for us since before the foundation of the world. To have our Lord and Savior, to have the opportunity and ability to understand him and to praise him and even and to be completely forgiven of all the times that we failed to do so. With that in mind, let's pray. We thank You, Father, our Father in Heaven, for the greatness of Your glory that has been revealed to us. We thank You, Father, that we can reflect that glory back to You in, in understanding, and not just saying the words uh, praise You, or saying whatever words, not just repeating uh, things that are written, but to actually in our hearts understand You, have the full knowledge of You, have the full knowledge of our Lord, and to be able to express our love and gratitude to you for who you are. You have given us the vehicle of prayer to do that, as well as for other things, to ask for ourselves, to confess our sins, and to, um, to ask for others. And to know, Father, that things that are in your will will be accomplished. To know, Father, that you are for us and not against us. And that though at times we struggle and strive against the flesh and the world, we know, Father, that you are patient, that you are kind, and when we need it, you're tough on us, and we appreciate that. We thank you, Father, for our salvation through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has made everything new. And so, Father, as we approach your word again today, and as we sing to you in praise of you, we ask that your spirit guide and be upon us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, please. to lay Start in Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, chapter four. Uh, With a a few odds and ends left over, we completed our study of prayer in the Psalms. We looked at several types of psalms that provide for us um, types of prayer. And that the and we noted that the Psalms are actually prayers. At the end of Psalm 72, it says, "Here the prayers of David have ended." And so, in the in the Psalter itself, it calls them prayers. And so, what we're going to do now is turn to our Lord's prayer. And uh, there's some work to do on that, and and for a, a, an understanding. Uh, and it, obviously, there's a lot of misunderstanding about this. And we'll try and sort through that. Uh, But first, before you approach a text, you should know its context. Uh, The context is what, uh, the, the paragraphs that come before and after your passage, as well as the entire book, and as well as the entire Bible. And so context is important because it's easy for us to take things out of context. For instance, a lot of people, Christians in the past and still currently, don't believe that the Sermon on the Mount is for us. And I find that uh, implausible. Um, and for, for reasons that, uh, you know, that appear maybe on the surface to be logical, for instance, in the Lord's Prayer we're, we're told, uh, your kingdom come, it sounds like we're asking God to bring his kingdom and that's not what it is at all. Uh, the kingdom of God isn't coming to earth because anybody asks for it. Even the Jews in the future who are who are uh, in the tribulation, who are asking for the Lord to return, He's not going to return just because they ask Him. It is a part of the decree of God. And so, uh, rather than say, "All right, I see what this means," and then throw it out, we need to be careful. And so, we look at context. And context helps us a great deal. And uh, all of us, this is another thing we have to know, and I have this, and you have this, is pre-understanding. We come to the Scripture with an understanding of the past. What we think the Scripture should say. And none of us are immune from that. Uh, and so, we have to be careful about that too. We have to be open to what the Scripture is going to say. And... Believe me, in this passage, there is nothing hugely controversial. Uh, as I, I talked to a certain person about, this was quite a while ago, someone had, because uh, uh, I wrote a book on Sermon on the Mount, but, and they said to me, this, this can't be for the church. And I said to this person, well, every command that you find in the Sermon on the Mount is also duplicated in the epistles of the New Testament. You can find every one of them. And this person said to me, I know. I know that. So I was like, well, if Jesus says to do it, you say it's not not for me. And if Paul says to do it, you say it is for you. And there's there's a... Con- now, you've you got to understand that that what that is is a pre-understanding. I, I was taught that the Sermon on the Mount was not for the church. And I just accepted it. But um, I have... Um, profoundly changed that view in my own heart. Uh, So what we want to do here this morning, and this may take a class, this will at least take two, is to see the Lord's Prayer in the context of all of Matthew. But really, we're going to look at it in the context of Matthew 1 through about 11. And not that we're going to read all of that, I would highly encourage you to do it. Um, the, the, the Gospel of Matthew is definitely broken into some sections and you can get in one sitting uh, reading through, I would say, through chapter 11, you can get a real nice uh, overview of what Matthew is getting at. Uh, Matthew is certainly the author that is not contended very much. It was written sometime between 50 and 70 A.D. We don't know exactly. Uh, what we do know is Matthew is a tax collector residing in Capernaum. And when Jesus came up to him, this is what it says in the gospel. He comes and he says, hey, Matthew, follow me. And he does. And that's all we hear of him. Uh, the char- He's one of the favorite characters in The Chosen is uh, the character who plays Matthew. Although there's some definite um, uh, conjecture about the personality of Matthew because we don't know anything about him. Uh, Nothing is known of his exploits as an apostle. Uh, After Pentecost, where did he go and what did he do? We have no idea. Uh, The early church seems to suggest that he went east. Uh, And that's the general testimony of antiquity, but the precise scene or scenes of his ministry cannot be determined. It was universally believed by the church fathers that Matthews was the first gospel written. It is also universally believed that he wrote it from Antioch, in uh, which had a... Uh, that's the first place. So Antioch is north of Galilee, uh, probably another day's journey north of Galilee. So about three days' journey north, not by car, but by ancient world walking. <laughs> uh, three days uh, north of Jerusalem, <clears throat> And that's where the first Gentiles really uh, impacted the church. Uh, but we know that Matthew's gospel is written with a view, a special view towards the Jews. Uh, it's unmistakable in his writing that amongst all the gospels, all four, that Matthew's is targeted for the Jews. So we might say, well, if we're Gentiles, why should we read it? Uh, <clears throat> as you know, when a Jew became a believer. There's no Jew or Gentile in the church. And so this gospel is certainly for all the church, and it's marvelous. Uh, And so as Jesus says at the end of the gospel of Matthew, go and make disciples not of the Jews only, but of all nations. So the gospel is for all. Matthew gives the fullest record of the Sermon on the Mount. It is also in the other gospels. They're called synoptic, sin meaning same and optic meaning to see. So Matthew, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic gospels because they match each other so well, which is incredibly interesting because they're written by different people at different times from different places. And there's all kinds of uh, scholarly thoughts about how in the world did that occur. But they're not exactly the same. There's uh, things in Matthew's gospel that are not in others and vice versa. Uh, The... um, Herod's decree to kill all the children in Bethlehem under two years old, that's only in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, it's defined, it defined Jesus's Matthew's Gospel, again, gives us the fullest record of the Sermon on the Mount. And it defined Jesus' position as to the law. And this is of great importance to us. Um And it really is the center theme of the Sermon on the Mount is that when Jesus said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill. And so, because in this sermon is all the ways, the ethics, the morals, the commandments of a disciple of Jesus. This is for disciples to love your enemy, to love your enemy, do good to your enemy. Uh, If you greet those who greet you only, how are you extraordinary? He is calling us to be extraordinary. Uh, And so in Matthew, gives this Sermon on the Mount, again, in its fullest uh, record. And he demanded a righteousness, uh, Jesus did, demanded a righteousness that was of God. And so this, again, you don't see this in the law of Moses. Be perfect, you see, be holy as your father is holy. Well, it doesn't say your father, does it? It says as God is holy. And that is a big change here. That Yavah or Yahweh or Jehovah, however you want to pronounce it, becomes father. Uh, and so he demanded righteousness that was of God. Be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. He says in this sermon. And that you have heard it said, there's a number of cases, there's actually three, concerning adultery, murder, and uh, the third one that's escaping me for some reason. That you have heard it said, which is in the past, and then he says, but I say to you. And you say, well, he's given us different commands. He's not. Not at all. He's giving us the commands the way they were always meant to be followed. I do not see a different love of God in the Old Testament and the New. I see a, a, the same love of God attempted by those who didn't have position in Christ, who attempted by those who were not new creatures in Christ, attempted by those who were not filled with the Spirit or indwelt by the Spirit. And therefore, they were called to love God, right, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is repeated in the New Testament. Love your neighbor as yourself, also repeated in the New Testament. Those commands don't go away. It's just that what God has made us to be allows us to, real, to love God the way that man was always designed to. This is the great blessing of the church. And Jesus said it before he died. A new commandment I give you, love one another. But that's an old commandment, isn't it? Love your neighbor as yourself, it's an old commandment. But I give you a new one, he said, and really in a new way, it is. Love one another as I love you. Love as God loves. and He's made us to be that. Context.? All right? So if you're me, I mean, I, what I want to do is jump right into the passage, that you know, get my work on it done. And then but there's work as preliminary work that, at the first seems like,,, oh, I mean, you mean I've got to study the whole book? And uh, yes, for the, for the pastor, yes, but for all of us to understand, where is this as Matthew presents it? First thing we have to understand is that the Gospels are not history books. The Gospels are not a, uh, God did not commission Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to just write a history. See, what did Jesus do in this day and in that day? And to record it, like we're recording the Revolutionary War or something. They're literary. They're works of art. They depict a drama that is, and that's why they're slightly different. Matthew is putting together the history of Jesus in a way that speaks to the Jews and also literary. It's a literary work that is presented to us in a way, and that way is meant to impact us in a certain way. So Matthew's Which starts the whole New Testament, starts with what? The genealogy. And we're all excited for genealogies, right? Can't wait. Can't wait. Matthew 1 1. All right, let's go. Who begat who? You can't even pronounce the names. But what you find in the genealogy is David's name mentioned twice. That's odd. You find three sets of people, three sets of fourteen. Fourteen. Pause. Fourteen. Pause. Fourteen. That number is significant, two times seven. And in the and so in that those the 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 first fourteen is the ascendancy from Abraham, and you know there's a lot of bumps in that road, but the ascendancy of Abraham to the monarchy of David. That's the first fourteen. And though we have Israel failing all along the way, David is the great king. How does David turn out, really? Does he, be, is it, does he become the king of kings? He's not qualified. So then David births Solomon on and on. And what happens? The second set of 14 goes from the ascendancy, the height, the hill of the monarchy, down, 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 down to captivity. It gets so bad that the nation is destroyed. That's the second 14. It ends with a curse. And then the last 14 is the uh, return of Israel from Babylon. And now these, uh, no longer any kings, uh, there's no, no one held the king position from uh, the captivity onward. They were not allowed to. And then so we go from, but it's the line of David that now goes through the the return after the captivity up to someone. And this is the Lord Jesus Christ. And there it ends. Within this genealogy, which is Matthew. Matthew's writing to Jews, Jews love genealogies. We find we find in Paul's Gospel that he tells Timothy make sure they stop arguing about genealogies because they're they're arguing about things that are just causing division that make that have no matter in things but the Jews love genealogies uh, the fact that there's three sets of 14 the fact that Jesus's lineage goes right back to Abraham right this is proven and the Jews are saying well yeah this man is the son of David the son of Abraham we have his perfect lineage and as you're reading this perfect lineage not so perfect you find that there's four women in it women in israel you never put a woman in a genealogy it was always man to either son or grandson or great grandson never a woman and there's four women in jesus uh, i'm sorry matthew's genealogy two of whom are not jews We have Rahab from Jericho. We have Ruth, who is a Moabite, enemy of Israel, in fact. And then we have Bathsheba, not mentioned by name, but mentioned as the wife of Uriah, who had her child in the genealogy of Christ through adultery. And the other other one is Tamar. Tamar is the one who dressed herself like a prostitute so she could sleep with her father-in-law so that she could have a child. That child, Perez, is in the line of Christ. What was Rahab? Prostitute. What was Ruth? Moabite. People that look at this genealogy and go, what? And yet, it opens the New Testament. Because Jesus' kingdom would not be made of all of these perfect people who fit perfectly in line with everybody's expectations. Not at all. It would be us. But what we would be is completely forgiven. So we go from the genealogy. In Matthew's Gospel, just to summarize far too quickly, we have the genealogy, then the birth, the magi, the persecution of Herod in Bethlehem. The flight to Egypt. And then back to Nazareth. And then 30 years go by. Which we're not told. Only Luke actually includes something about the childhood of Christ. Which is very brief. And then we have his baptism. After the baptism, Jesus heads into the wilderness. And not heads. He's led there by the Holy Spirit. And then... He, he is tempted by Satan in the wilderness, which he passes with flying colors. Get behind. You know, and then he says, be gone, Satan. And then he heads to Galilee to begin his ministry. And the first thing out of his mouth... Now, is this the first thing out of his mouth? No, obviously not. He didn't stay silent until Matthew 4.17 after the wilderness. But this is what Matthew lists first, and that's what makes it significant. Matthew is setting us up for something, because he's writing literature. Look at Matthew 4.17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. kingdom of heaven is only found in Matthew's gospel. So we say, wait a minute, and, and there's kingdom of God is also found in his gospel, but it's usually in the other gospel, it's kingdom of God. And our, um, our guess at why he does that is because the Jews would not use the name God. Right? They would use uh, Adonai, they wouldn't say Jehovah, they wouldn't say Yahweh. So kingdom of heaven was more palatable to the Jews rather than kingdom of God. That's possible. But notice what he says. Repent. What does repent mean? Turn around. That's all it means. The context gives repent its significance. And the context of repent here is that a kingdom is at hand, which would indicate that the people to whom Christ is coming are following the wrong kingdom. And it bears out through the Gospels. Right, what did the Jews really want? They, for a Messiah, they wanted the kingship. They wanted him on the throne. They wanted the Romans out. They wanted an independence amongst, of their own, their own power, their own economic independence as they were like under Solomon. And that's what they wanted. But that's, not, that's the wrong kingdom. The kingdom is not earthly. He said this at the end of his ministry to Pilate. My kingdom's not of this world. The kingdom's not earthly. It's not made up of soldiers and material. But to the Jews in Israel... Everything was material. Right? How did they worship God in Israel? Well, it was you know what you tithed, what you ate, what commandments you followed, uh, what you did in the temple, uh, how you cleansed yourself, how you washed your hands, how you followed the Sabbath. And all of this was material. What of it was of the heart? And Jesus pointed this out to them. The law is not written on your heart. Because if it was, you would follow it. It's not what goes into the body that defiles a man. It comes out. And the disciples said, what do you mean by that? And he said, it's what comes out of the heart that defiles a man. They're following the wrong kingdom. And so they repent, right? Repent means change, turn around, stop following the wrong kingdom, follow the right one. And John the Baptist, which is a part of his process here, as Matthew is leading us up to. John's ministry was to prepare Israel for the coming Messiah. And what was John's message? Repent. You're following the wrong kingdom. Be ready for the right kingdom because the king is coming. So repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then we're told in Matthew's gospel that he called his first disciples. Peter and Andrew, brothers. James and John, brothers. James and John are his cousins. (laughs) And and it's likely that they fished together. uh, In the Chosen, they bring this out pretty well. Uh, And so he calls them. And what does he say to them? Look at verse 19. Again, this is not just concerned with history or what is actually said. Matthew is giving to us an order on purpose. He said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And what did they do? This is very important. They immediately followed him. Now, can you imagine? The, these four fellas are going to be apostles. Can you imagine them saying, eh, I want to fish for another year, and then I'll think about it. They're not, they can't do that, because then they wouldn't be apostles, right? So Christ knows. He calls them. But here's the thing. They immediately left him. What does this mean? It means obedience. It means leaving behind the nets and the boat and following the king. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, the king is here. Follow him. So, this, again, not simply setting history, but setting down a setting down of the facts. But this is literary. Stop following the wrong kingdom and follow the true kingdom. Then to the disciples first, the kingdom, he says, follow me. Following him is the same as following the kingdom because he's the king. And the king is, as he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Everything is based upon him. The way of the kingdom, the truth of the kingdom, the life of the kingdom is all based upon him, his person. There is no other. In the kingdom of heaven, there's no competing view. There's no Jesus is a Republican and somebody else is a Democrat, and they're fighting it out to see who gets control of whatever. Nah, uh uh-uh. Monarchy. Jesus is the one and only, and they immediately follow him. So go to Colossians 1. You can hold your place in Matthew. We're coming back. There's no debate in the kingdom of heaven. There's one way, one way only. Now, we may say, well, you know, that's the disciples. Of course they had to immediately follow him. But why does Matthew give this to us like this? Immediately they followed him because we're all to do this. Now, we're not called to be apostles. We can actually sit on our hands for a while. We've been doing it for years, haven't we? I mean, pretty much, uh, <clears throat> we've because of our sin nature and our addictions and our desires that are personal and whatever, we have known that we're to follow him in every aspect of our lives, but we have held back. And yet the offer still stands. Follow me. Immediately, well, who is my neighbor? You know what I mean by that? We study this guy. We love this guy, this lawyer. Jesus, what are the great commandments? Uh, oh No, Jesus, what must I do to gain eternal life? He says, you know the commandments. Tell me. In other words, you know the commandments. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. You said it rightly. Now go and do it. oh <laughs> That's not what I was expecting. I was expecting debate because when we debate, we never have to really do anything. We can just talk about it. Well, let's not do it yet. Let's talk about it. Let's not, okay, well, are we ready to go? Not yet. Let's talk about it. He says, who's my neighbor? Well, let me give you a parable that, that a child could figure out who is the neighbor. Uh, and so there's no debate here. So first we have the king. Look at Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, "...for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything, in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him." And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. You see a theme in that. This is a hymn, by the way. This stands right out from the letter to the Colossians. Um, It even has meter and rhyme in the original Greek. What do you see repeated here over and over? You see like the word everything, all things. You also see first. Right. You also see right at the top of it that he is the image. This Greek word icon means exact duplicate. And of course he is because it's the Trinity. Is he's the exact image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. You see repeated over and over in this hymn the word all. All things, over all things, before all things. Now, back when in Matthew, when Jesus says, follow me, he offers them a different job. It's similar in ways. He said, I will make you fishers of men. In other words, I have a job for you. It's not just leave what you were doing, leave your nets, leave your boat, and, and just leave it with no, nothing else to do. He gives them a purpose, just like he does to us. We have a plan, a purpose. We have work to do. We have a calling on our lives. We have a ministry. We have a spiritual gift. We have a church. We have a body of which we're members. So he gives them a new job. Look at Colossians 3.1. The kingdom of heaven is not the kingdom of earth. Now, the kingdom of heaven will be on earth, but when? Not in this age. At the second coming of Christ, it will be established for a thousand years, literal thousand years on earth. But look at Colossians 3.1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, and you have, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, not like our life, but is our life, is revealed, then you will be revealed with him in glory. And so we have in Colossians, the king, and then we have the new vocation. Just like to the disciples. How long should we wait to give up the earthly things and seek the heavenly things? Well, the longer you wait, the longer it takes for you to see it. That's, that, that's what we lose. We continue to trudge around in the muck and mire of this world thinking that we can have a relationship with God that's partly our own desires and partly His desires, and we try to make this amalgamation and make it work. And it doesn't work. And this is what Matthew is telling us. So what's in the Sermon on the Mount? the ethics, the morals, the principles of the disciple. What's before it? Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Follow me and do it immediately. Don't wait. And then, and within it, the hinge of this sermon is I've fulfilled the Mosaic Law. And now what I've given you is the law upon your heart. And you will see it uh, it's not a. It's so what happened under the Mosaic Law? It was the commandments were really your Lord, right? The Lord, the Master, is the commandments. You either keep them or you break them, and if and there's consequences to both. And then Jesus comes and fulfills the law, and he fulfills it for us. The way he fulfills it for us is through his sacrifice on the cross. His blood, which is a is a term that means all of his sacrifice on the cross is what satisfies the law for us. So we're made righteous and just in the eyes of God through Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice. We're forgiven of all sin. And so what happens now is that the commandments are not our Lord, but the Lord is our Lord. And we say, of course the Lord was the Lord of Israel, but under the Mosaic law, you were under commandments. We're still under commandments. We're to fulfill them. But it's now what it becomes is, for instance, if, if you love someone, the person you love most in the world, you naturally, because of your love, you want to do good things for them. You give them gifts. And look, we saw this uh, this past week with praising God. If you love someone like God and you don't tell them, it, it's, you have hindered your joy of love the joy of love is consummated or brought to its height when you actually say it and you speak it and you praise the one that you love. If you hold it within, you're limiting yourself and them and you've completely limited your relationship. When we praise the Lord because we really want to, not because the words tell us to, but like we see Him for who He is, And we love him for who he is. And we feel this, I have to tell him how magnificent he is. That's praising the Lord. And it brings to fruition your love of him. Consummates your relationship. Now, what a lot of people have done, and the same is true in, well, not really in human relationships, which is interesting now that I think about it. But let's say that you really, the person you love the most in the world... You say, well, I've got to do good things for them. And it's kind of like a job. And so what's your master there is the good things? You say, well, all right, it's their birthday. I'm going to get them a nice present. It's Christmas. I'm going to get them a nice present. You know, I really should tell them I love them and that they're great because I should. And so you're just doing it because you ought to. So who's your master in that? The works themselves. The gift is your master. The words are your master. In other words, I better just tell them, that, hey, you look like you lost weight. I don't really care. You know what I mean? I'm just flattering for the sake of flattering. I'm just going through the motions. Say, I'm a salesman. I want to make a sale. Boy, you're really handsome and intelligent. <laughs> now, let's see how this car drives, you know. Uh, <clears throat> do you really care about them? No. And see, under the law, it's your 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 chief, your master, is the law. And so here's this command, i got to do it because I ought to. Here's another command, i got to do it because I ought to. Here's things that I shouldn't do because I shouldn't ought to. Bad English. But then, you love the Lord. See, now, when Christ fulfills the law, he takes us above the law, but he doesn't remove us from the law. Because as I always like to say, adultery is still wrong in the church age, just as it was in Israel. It's that we do the things we do because we love Him, and He becomes the Master. Not the laws. And hence, we're propelled, fulfilled for us. And we say, well, in that way, we would keep all the law. That would be great. In heaven, we will. right now, we know that we don't. We don't fulfill it. We don't do what we're called to do perfectly. But what we do know, because of our lover, our husband, our Lord, our Savior, our Master, He has died for us and we're forgiven of all sin. So who am I following? The Lord. And the laws go with it. When I love Him, I love the laws. I love to do good. I love to love others. I love to encourage. I love to sacrifice. I love to give. I love to pray. Because I love Him. And you see what Jesus has done here. So then when He gives us the Sermon on the Mount, He's saying, look, yes, here's the Mosaic Law that I've fulfilled, but here is what the law always meant to be. Adultery is not just that you resist committing the act. But if you lust for a woman with your heart, oh, this is great. We don't have time this morning. Because that's the passage where he says, cast your eye out. You know what? You don't commit adultery with your eye. You use it. But if you were struck blind, you could still commit adultery in your heart. You'd have to do it from memory, I guess. But you could remember that hot babe that you were lusting after in your soul. (laughs) Just being real here. And, and and still do it. Jesus told us, you lust in your heart, and what is He going to change in us? Our hearts? Then the Sermon on the Mount becomes our swan song. Is that a thing? No. I'm not completely versed in that that phrase. All right, so immediately they left and follow him. And so, as we saw, we seek the things in heaven, not the things of the earth. That's our new vocation now. And, you know, for the you know, if we were fishermen before, we're still fishermen. You know, we're not called to be apostles that are going to travel the earth and spread the gospel. Some of us are. But for most of us in the church age, we still hold a skill and a profession and so on. But we do that. See, and things have all changed now, though, because when we fulfill our profession, we do our work as unto the Lord. He's really our foreman, our boss, and so everything changes for us because we followed Him. But this it demands absolute obedience. And the longer, the more we resist that, the all the excuses we come up with, the who is my neighbor thing that we do with all the things that we don't want to do. Let's talk about this, Lord. Let's debate this. Let me figure out how I can avoid being obedient in all areas. The longer we wait to be obedient in everything, and again, we're not going to become sinless, but the longer we wait to commit, the longer it takes for us to see this. Because you're not going to see it unless you do it. None of the apostles know what it's like to be an apostle unless they drop the nets and go. They could be taught about it, they could read about it, they, but they know nothing about it. So look at Colossians 1. You can find all of this in the book of Colossians. For this reason also, uh, verse 9, Colossians 1:9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness. And patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So, what do we see in the Colossians here that Paul is praying for and also praising? Notice Paul's, in every letter, even in the Corinthians, it's full of encouragement. You see the word all. How many times do you see the word all? Be filled with the knowledge and all spiritual wisdom, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, please him in all respects bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might and for attaining of all steadfastness and patience. And then at the, there starting verse 12, being joyful in it all. All, every, all, every, everything of mine, everything of me, everything of my heart, all to him and joyously. How does that happen? Well, the Lord came. He brought the kingdom of God to earth. He died to make members of that kingdom. And now we're a part of it. And being a part of that kingdom is a part of an eternity of light and joy and holiness and goodness and everything that's good in this world. That, that is here actually good in this world. but for all of eternity will be as well. We if you're a believer, we all have this opportunity now. Drop our nets and follow him. What is my new vocation, Lord? In other words, in the Lord's prayer, your will be done. So waiting to give him all of ourselves in obedience is waiting to experience the life of the heavenly kingdom. You know what the great bonuses of experiencing now the kingdom's not here. I've had people send me emails in the past about, hey, you're teaching the kingdom is here. I am not. I'm teaching that we're members of it. Colossians 1.13, Always my go-to passage on that. We've been transferred to the kingdom of His beloved Son. <clears throat> it, no, it's not here. But we're members of it. We also have insight. That's what Paul called it, the mystery, the way of the kingdom. Who knows of it in this world? Do you know the way of the kingdom? No one's going to know. Uh, If you ask a Mormon, they're going to tell you another way. (laughs) They talk about kingdom a lot, uh, but they they don't have that right. Um, Do you know the way? Do you know the truth of it? Do you know the life of this, which is the mystery? Paul called it the mystery. But then Paul said, You know what the mystery is? And he pointed right to it it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the mystery. But we see here in these Gospels and in all of the New Testament that the Lord is the embodiment of everything that God has desired for mankind. Because when it's in, you say, what's the purpose of God? You just have to look at the end of it. What happens at the end? Mankind in God's kingdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The last enemy to be defeated is death. Death, where is your sting? Or death, where is your, your power and your sting? And then where the kingdom is given up to the Father. And we're all members of it for all of eternity. That, that chapter speaks of our resurrection, just like Christ resurrected. And, you know, we're made a part of this. So, we all, the more we wait in obedience, the more, you know, the longer we wait to experience the life of this kingdom And the bonus to this is you experience the life of the kingdom in the enemy's territory. We're behind enemy lines. You experience and live. You're a light. The light of Christ shines through you. Now, if I had learned this, (laughs) I wish I had learned this a long time ago. Um, I was taught it. I just didn't learn it. And and that... um, you just follow him the way that you're supposed to, and you will be amazed at how many little uh, interactions with people that you didn't know were coming and but because you are following and the light was shining through you, that you are a, you're a light to the world. And people's lives are changed because of you. It, that, it's the greatest aphrodisiac there is. It's better than any drug. And this is what God is calling us to, to get a taste of it. Because as we live this life, the added bonus is you're experiencing it behind enemy lines. Before Christ plants His foot on this earth again, and when He does, His kingdom is coming. Do you know what He does before He comes back, right before He comes back? He marries us. He will not return until, in Revelation 19, He will not return to the earth until He consummates His marriage to us. And then we go with Him. See, what does He care for most? You and me. I'll throw me in there. When Jesus... So go back to Matthew 5. That's about... We could finish it here. So what kind of what we've seen this morning, and I think it... I think it wraps up pretty well. uh, Is the context of the Sermon on the Mount in the front of it. So from Matthew 1 through 4 leading us up to this which the main part of it leading up to us is repent the kingdom of God is at hand follow me and they follow immediately. Then comes the Sermon on the Mount. Now afterwards what Matthew is going to write about, starting in chapter 8, because the Sermon on the Mount is from chapter 5 through chapter 7, starting in chapter 8 is going to be three chapters of Christ doing an enormous amount of miracles. And so when Matthew is going to reveal to us is like, look, see this king who is telling you to live at the heights of heaven in this way of ethics and morals that are of the kingdom, this one has power over all things. Just like we read in in, uh, Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the creator of all things. In Matthew's Gospel, starting in chapter 8, we find him healing every disease, casting out demons. He has power over everything. So when Jesus' ministry begins, there's a call of immediate obedience of his followers. It reveals to us the importance of full obedience as believers. What he calls us to think, to do, to say, and where to go, we must go. If we do not, and times we don't, we must confess and repent and get going again without regret. And then Matthew gives us a sermon. A sermon on the Mount is God's will for the ethics of man. Uh, and it's just wonderful, you know. And it, it is incredible what he asks us to do. And, of course, like any great leader, he'd done it first himself. We always want to say in the back of our minds, yeah, but you're God, Jesus. What about us? You know, And you know, he wouldn't ask us to do it if we couldn't do it. And is it a challenge? To the core of you. To the core of you. That, I mean, complete obedience is complete obedience. Is to hold anything back from him. And we do. And God is patient. But it will challenge you to every part of you till you till you're ready., all right, we all have our little pet areas that we want to hold on to. I think I talked when I talked about this last week, I thought of the your little pet area that you don't want anybody else to trample on, that you will you'll be kind and not judgmental for many things. but when somebody does that thing, you're like, "Oh, I can't believe that. And you've got your little... You've got your little perfectly clean little carpet that no one can get on but somebody comes along with their muddy boots and walks all over it. And God God calls them in. And he says, "See, come walk on this carpet." And we're like, "Ah, I can't. I hate them, you know." And he's challenging us. Is, do you have the, my love or do you have a, uh, a, a you know, a, a facsimile of it that you think is actually purely mine? But when I put you through things, you find out that your love is not pure like mine. Not like I commanded you. Right? But, he would say, you're forgiven. There's no condemnation for those who are in me. Now get going. Learn how. Because you must. Study. Prayer, study, prayer, <laughs> and 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 you got to go for it by faith. Faith is a risk. So the, the, the you know, the, there's this bundle of nerves in my solar plexus that says, "Don't do that," and then my brain says, "Yeah, that's a good idea. Don't do that." And then I have to say, "Shut up, all of you, and do it." Right? He argue, I argue with myself all the time. <laughs> Few times I've been caught doing it out loud. It's pretty embarrassing, <laughs> talking to myself. The law revealed these ethics, but no one attained to them. They're here. So look at Matthew five. We can Matthew five seventeen. And, and if you're following along in this study, I would encourage you to take. Oh, it'd only take you about ten minutes. 15 minutes, to just read the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 through 7. It'll take you 10 minutes, right? And just read it through. Go slow. Soak it up for yourself. And it helps to see the context of everything. But Matthew 5:17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Now this is where I, sh- I should have. I can't believe I forgot. I have a great slide on this that shows you Hebrew letters. That uh, for instance the Oh, I haven't taken Hebrew yet, so this is going to be. Hopefully you haven't taken Hebrew yet either, so if I get this wrong, you won't even know. <laughs> but there's a there's a ket, the c the ch, which looks like a house. You know, it's like a roof and then two the two walls. The hay. This wall goes up but doesn't quite touch the roof. So there's like a little space there. And if you're a copyist, you know, you're a, one that copies a scribe, it's so easy to just, you know, make that touch and then it would change it. The, the D and the, I, can't remember, I think it's the cough, I think it's the K, one of them has like a little lip on the top and the other one doesn't. They, they look almost identical. And that's what Jesus is saying here. My law will not pass away. The the perfectly written Mosaic law, even every letter is going to be purely preserved. So notice, he says, I'm not sending it away. And this, unfortunately, for a lot of Christians, we have thought that he did send it away. Because, and Paul says this very clearly, we're not under the law. No, we're not under it. The law is not our master. We're over it. Not in the colloquial English term, I'm over that. You know, Not that. He's taken us above it, and we fulfill it with joy to the level that it was always meant to be. To what love your neighbor was always meant to be, was exactly what Jesus said. You lay down your life for your friends. If it costs you your life, you give it. Uh, and, and, and he, that's what he did. He took it to what it was, what it was always meant to be. And he says, now that I've forgiven you of all things and brought you into myself, you are going to fulfill this the way that I have called all mankind to fulfill it. Not only are you not going to commit adultery, you're not even going to lust for a woman in your heart. What does this mean? What the, therefore, it shows us that adultery was given, uh, we would think, well, it preserves family and marriages. And absolutely right. Absolutely right. That is absolutely included. But it is more. It is the absolute loyalty of spouse to spouse above any other person on earth. And, of course, that contains, if you had that, your marriage wouldn't be broken by anything. Of course, Jesus gives one out on that, which is adultery. Infidelity, he said. For no other reason, do I give cause for divorce. Right? Absolute, pure, perfect commitment. And where do we see that? We see it in heaven amongst the Trinity. We see it also from God to us. And that is the life. That's the life. It's their life. It's the fellowship of the Trinity. Absolute, perfect loyalty and fidelity. And that's what adultery always meant. And see, Jesus brings that out. And so he, he says in verse 19, so let's, let's read this again. And Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of these... Uh, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. See that? He said, look, guys, to the least of it, you are going to do it. And again, you're not under the law. This is the way. And so we, well, what about all the animal sacrifices and ceremonial washings? Well, it, it's a, it's. I find it refreshing and amazing that God treats us like adults. We're to figure that out. Because you don't see Jesus here saying, well, I don't mean the sacrifices and washings and the festivals and rituals. Why would we wash in the laver when we're clean by the blood of Christ? He lets us figure that out. Which, of course, the epistles expound upon that quite a bit. Why would we offer animals which is a part of the whole of the epistle of the Hebrews to the Hebrews. Why would we keep offering animals when Christ, the one sacrifice, has come and it is accomplished? It is finished. Why would we do that? Of course, we wouldn't. So we know that the rituals, the festivals, all of that, ritual washings, those are all gone now. But the commandments... That pertain to our morality, our marriages, our friendships, our worship of God in terms of praise—you're supposed to praise the Lord in, in the Old Testament as well as the New. Our love of Him, our love of each other—how is that changed in this age? Well, the I don't know, how would you? How do, an analogy might be that God cut the the tethered rope. You know, we're restricted by what in the Old Testament? Well, we're not indwelt by God. Right? Our sins are covered, but not completely forgiven. Not yet. That has to come at the cross. Although they're in terms of, we know what's coming, so we know we're forgiven. Um, and I'm speaking as an Old Testament saint. Uh, you know, we don't have the full revelation of God. Not yet. I mean, there's things that are holding us back. And so we love God and love each other if we were faithful in Israel to the extent that we can. And then when Christ came, he, he popped the cap off, if you will. He cut the ropes that were holding us back by saving us, by redeeming us, by electing us, by adopting us into the family of the Father. And so the Lord's Prayer is in the midst of this, right? It's in chapter 6. And in Israel, if you were praying, you know, you're an Old Testament saint praying, how would you address the Lord? Well, you wouldn't do it the way Jesus did. Because Jesus was the first Jew to be running around calling Yavah Elohim, His Father. Father, Father this and Father that. And yet, in the Lord's Prayer, He says, speak as soon as you open it, Our Father. And so the, again, what that means is like the, the commands, the rote way of saying things, those he broke through and gave us God as our Father through his sacrifice. So again, the law is not abolished, it is fulfilled. And as Jesus said, not one aspect of the law is going to pass away. And so we are under these commands. They're expanded upon in the New Testament for sure, but if you check them, they're the same. Uh, Many of them are the same. There are some new ones in the New Testament that pertain to our position, and I am out of time. So let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the calling that you have put upon us. Each one of us as believers know that we have been called to follow you. And therefore, you have given us the ability. We also know in our hearts that that is the greatest possible life that anyone could live, is to follow you. And we know in each of us, Father, there's always something holding us back, whether it's addictions or desires or lusts that it's so hard for us to let go of them. And Father, we just appeal to you, to your grace, your forgiveness, but also the motivation that you give us through your word for a clear and present understanding of how wonderful you are. And that is what's going to change us, is seeing you, your glory, transforms us. We thank you, Father, in Christ's name, amen. Over again. We'll take our offering this morning. uh, Well, we don't have an offering. Sparse. Sparse uh, staff. Alan, you got to be the man. Oh, yeah. All right. Thanks, Tom. That's what I like. Stand in front of them, Tom, until they put something in there. Oh, that's great. We'll we'll pray for the offering next week. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. You know, I, I think, I bet the early church, where they're just, you know, they, they, their churches were about the size of ours. And I bet it was just a big family thing, which is what we have. There's been been a number of people who have visited here who have envied what we have because their churches are bigger and people don't know each other all that much. Um, So, anyway, this is encouragement. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to uh, be together, uh, to have a church in which we can gather, to have your word in front of us, to be able to read it and to see things that were spoken thousands of years ago, but you have preserved the beautiful Gospel of Matthew and that beautiful Sermon on the Mount. May the precepts in it and the truths in it speak to us. May we ponder what we've learned today so that we may follow our Lord immediately, leaving all things behind and following Him, picking up our cross, denying ourselves and following Him, knowing, Father, that that life is an abundant life, more so than we can imagine. The final moments of our uh service or dedicated to anyone who has not come to believe in Christ as their Savior. If you have not believed upon Him, I beg you to please consider who is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Son of God who's become a man and died for your sins. On the cross at Calvary, He has died for you in your place. And no, there's no, in no other religion is that offered. In no other religion is there such a Savior as Jesus Christ, the God-man who... Died for every one of your sins. So if you believe upon him, you will be saved. Accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Well, thank you, Father, and bless us today. In Christ's name, amen.